Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Uh, hello, Kat. Guess, guess whose Xbox Series X came wandering home? What? You actually got it? <laughs> At the time of this recording, I got a message saying, yeah, your Xbox is here uh, at Walmart. And I'm like, uh, excuse me. And I checked my bank account and sure enough, it took the money out again. Thank God it was there. So yeah, I guess after this is done, I will go and pick up my Xbox. Braving COVID to go get your Xbox. You're a braver lady than I am. Yeah, I've been I've been braving a lot. I probably shouldn't, but sometimes I have no choice. I'm actually in one of Toronto's hotspots, which doesn't make it good. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do, unfortunately. No, it doesn't make it good, Nadia. Take care and stay safe. I'm, I am actually going out a lot less than I was. Like I'm getting delivery whenever possible. Well, Nadia, we have a special guest today. We do, and I am very excited about this guest. Yes, our special guest this week is Austin Walker. We're bringing him on to have a very chill and relaxed conversation about a whole mess of topics. We talk about Mass Effect, Final Fantasy XIV, and tabletop RPGs. And yes, we do get a little bit of a mech conversation in there. So yeah, we just wrapped it up and ended up being like 50 minutes. It was really great, as always, because Austin is awesome. He is. He's a, he's a good talker. But before we get to that, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. It really brightens our day. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And I have been known to stream from time to time at twitch.tv slash TV. I got back into it just this past Monday, Nadia. I started playing Final Fantasy VIII because that is part of our Pantheon Game Plug Club for February. It sure is. And how did that go? I died against the Elverit, <laughs> which was kind of embarrassing because I forgot to set the item for the junctioning because that's the thing. You have to actually set the commands in Final Fantasy VIII. So it sounds like you died to a tutorial battle. I mean, not really. It was one of the first kind of sort of kind of difficult battles because it has a an attack that hits the entire party and everything. And I accidentally and it does a fair amount of damage. I lost a character and suddenly I was like, oh, I can't raise I can't revive this character. Well, shit, I, I don't particularly like that they force you to set the actual commands and choose which commands that you want to use like i get that there's an element mm. of choice there but most of the time you're going to leave items out and then you kind of go I've, uh, this is annoying though because i can't easily raise people i don't want to have to choose between magic and items <laughs> that is a bit of a pain in the ass that's probably one of the things i didn't like about the game to begin with have you started playing it nadia no i'm gonna start this week well, I look forward to having you join us. Um, as I already mentioned, our playthrough of Final Fantasy VIII is part of the Pantheon of the Blood God. We just released our most recent episode for Lufia 2 with Christina Rose. And that was a really enjoyable episode as we traced its development, talked about its very best moments, and ultimately decided whether or not it would go in the Pantheon. That episode is available for our patrons at the $10 level, that would be patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Okay, Nadia, let's get on to the news. First item of business, the top story this week. Annoyingly, I had already <laughs> I already knew about this when we recorded our last episode, but I couldn't talk about it because we released on Monday and the news came out on Tuesday. But anyway, I saw uh -huh. Mass Effect Legendary Edition, the big old remaster of Mass Effect. Have you been paying any attention to that news, Nadia? 
A little bit. I did not actually see it, though, unlike you. It looks like a big improvement, in my opinion, because it goes up to a 4K60 and includes a lot of uh, visual improvements, uh, a lot of gameplay improvements. They changed the original Mass Effect a whole heck of a lot in particular and really do their best to try and unify the entire experience. And you could have some, some people might have some misgivings about what that might mean for the original Mass Effect in general, but also the original Mass Effect was not particularly accessible. So I think that having an excuse to go back and play the original game and then kind of go through the entire trilogy is really nice. Yeah. uh, Spoiler alert. We do have Austin talk a little bit about his impressions on the remake and uh, the word lunch flare comes up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that he talks about the friction as something that's like totally like maybe inherent to the actual experience of Mass Effect. And I don't necessarily I don't think I disagree. Like, I think that having the way that they tried to smooth all that away is kind of exempt kind of exemplifies the ways that Bioware in general has changed and not always for the better. There's a crunchy RPG aspect of the original Mass Effect that I really enjoy that I'm a little afraid will get lost, but it sounds like a lot of the systems in general are still in place. And obviously, I think the strongest part of the original Mass Effect is ultimately its story. So I think think that it can be kind of a good experience and it's a good gateway for people coming into the series for the first time. And if you want the original Mass Effect, it's still there over there on PC. Just get a controller mod. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's my point of view on the whole thing. And like I said to Austin, as someone who has not played Mass Effect and has heard that the first game is kind of archaic, and I do understand why some people might prefer that, but I I am just not interested in playing a really archaic game that I'm kind of wishy-washy on to begin with. Like I, I am obviously very curious about Mass Effect and I, I know it's something I absolutely must play and I'll, I'll probably love it. But I feel like I don't need the original crunchy experience to really get everything out of it. Well, I mean, it's not like the original Mass Effect was Ultima 7 or something like this uber <laughs> dated. Awesome. RPG where you have to like really put yourself in the frame of mind to be able to enjoy it. Like Mass Effect, I mean, when it came out, it was still a a very good RPG. It's just a little clunky in the way that it was coming out less than a year after the Gears of War, right? Right. And so everybody was like, wow, cover systems. That's amazing. (laughs) Nobody's ever thought of this before. It was like a new, it was like being enlightened, seeing the wheel for the first time. And it was also Bioware. Bioware was in a very different place where um, I I talked to one of the developers and he was talking about how a lot of the developers on on the original Mass Effect were just out of school and were using technology like Unreal Engine for the first time and had like these huge crazy ideas, which is totally reflected in the final set piece battle, which is in like zero G. And then you could like throw, use biotics to throw enemies into space and like the whole levels like rotating and it's totally crazy. Like the scope and the scale of the original Mass Effect is really cool. And it kind of gets lost in Mass Effect 2 and 3. So mm-hmm. I think that that aspect really still shines through in the original Mass Effect. So it, it's dated, but not in a way that I feel is unplayable. I do appreciate the idea of the original Mass Effect being this this first project by these wide-eyed, fresh game developers with big ideas. And 
even though, well, maybe some of them were kind of hard to implement, they had the the energy to try. Anyway, my coverage is over at IGN. I actually appeared on Podcast Unlocked, Nadia. Oh, awesome. Where we Way were, to go. We talked about Mass Effect Legendary Edition, and I totally forgot for a hot second that I was on an Xbox podcast and talked about how I was going to be playing it on my PlayStation 5. <laughs> Blasphemy. They put you up against the wall after that? Gasp. <laughs> Phil Spencer came to my house and broke my kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> At least you got to say hi. Uh, and I wrote an extensive preview also over at IGN where I talked a lot about the different systems involved and the fact that the Bioware decided not to put it on Unreal Engine 4. They stuck with Unreal Engine 3, which was the original baseline engine for Mass Effect. They just mm. souped it up a ton. They up the textures. They in, improved the graphics in a lot of ways. They tweaked the gameplay in a huge way. So it's not like it's super dated. It's just that they opted not to use the most recent technology because their argument was that it would have, A, been a humongous amount of work because most of the scripting from Unreal Engine 3 and the original trilogy did not carry over. So in effect, right. it would have been a remake rather than a remaster. And they were always focusing on doing a remaster, which is fair. Like doing a full-blown remake would have been a wholly different exercise and probably they would have had to release them as Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 as opposed to a quote-unquote legendary edition. And honestly, I think Bioware just desperately wants a win right now because their last two <laughs> games have, maybe you've heard, have not gone super well. Yeah, they're, they haven't really had a W in a little while. And to be fair, it's not like they were ever like coy about the whole thing. Just, hey, here's the Mass Effect remasters. You know, it's not a remake. It is what it is. And I think people like myself are, are going to be interested to jump on and see what the fuss is all about. Yeah, I think that I would say they started the project in like June of 2019. And it really, based on everything, the way that they talk, it really seems like the mandate was get this done on time and under budget or else. <laughs> Bioware magic or not, it needs to be done. I mean, I think the most disappointing omission, there are a couple of omissions. One was Pinnacle Station, which was this piece of DLC that's framed as a, a training simulator with uh, combat scenarios. Apparently, the source code got corrupted, according Ooh. to an interview. And this was something that they had. Th this was something that was kind of known way back in like 2011 when the PS3 version of Mass Effect 2 came out. And I, I think, I don't know. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, one way or another, Bioware discovered that the source code was corrupt. So they were had a lot of heartache trying to get it restored and find a way to do it. But in the end, they could not quite do it. Another one, uh. another big omission is the multiplayer which personally i don't really care because I, i'm like i don't really want to play multiplayer yeah. with mass effect i think of it as a single player experience but actually that multiplayer mode was quite good it did have hooks into the single player experience and it's good enough that people are still playing it nadia oh really that's yeah. interesting yeah because i mean it feels like every multiplayer game still has a small audience but there's always those diehards yeah but there are, there are people who are seriously into the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer. And I mean, the way that they framed it once again was it would have been a lot of work. We would have had to figure out cross-play and cross-progression. Right. And being able to do make goods for the people who are playing the original version, being able to bring them in in some seamless way. And that would have been an undertaking, quote, on par with basically redoing the entirety of the original Mass Effect. And there's a 
certain point where they had to draw the line and get this project actually done, which fair, but it, if you want to talk about a comprehensive edition, um, well, having multiplayer would have made it comprehensive. <laughs> yeah. I, I see both sides of the situation here. On one hand, uh, Bioware, yes, it's part of the experience and I understand how it would have been really hard to include the whole thing. Uh, on the other hand, I wonder if the people who are even playing Bioware online, if they went to the new one, if they'd even like it, they'd probably just say, oh, this is not what I want and go back to the old ways. Maybe. I don't know. I think mostly it it really makes an effort to play very similarly to at least how Mass Effect 3 played. Um, there are definitely tweaks to the, the difficulty. They add a lot of quality of life improvements like autosaves. Um, they changed the aim cone in Mass Effect. It's still there, but it's a lot more generous and is more skill-based than stats-based, mm. uh, among other things. But when it comes to the actual like way that the characters move and things like that, it's very much intended to feel like Mass Effect, only a lot prettier. So in that sense, the, the multiplayer people might still be okay with it. That's fair. Either way, we'll see who actually is interested in Mass Effect when it all comes out. I think the biggest controversy right now is the very first area in the original Mass Effect. It's called Eden Prime, Nadia. Mm -hmm. And in the original game, it's it's kind of apocalyptic. It has this red sky. It's a little menacing. And it's supposed cool. to, I suppose, be heralding what's to come as it were. Mm -hmm. In the remaster, they've completely repainted the level, only it's this lush jungle world. And Why? everybody is kind of going, qua? <laughs> because it, uh, they felt like it, uh, what's the word, changes the, the feel of the original game, that it takes away kind of the menace and the apocalyptic feel of the original Mass Effect. And I don't know, Maybe um, when I played the original Mass Effect, I remember being distinctly turned off by Eden Prime because I found it kind of ugly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. But I also like the idea. Of, I, I've always been a fan of the calm before the storm. Like hmm. I absolutely love nuclear disaster movies. And the the, the moment before the missile strike is always my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. And I mean, that's very much what Mass Effect uh, the original is. is. You go down to a planet and you're like, what the heck is going on with these Geth? What are they trying to do? And... Then things start to spin out of control as they go. But uh, I have not played the Mass Effect Legendary Edition yet. It was an entirely hands-off demo where I also got to talk to the actual developers. Game Informer had a big old cover story about it. And I don't know, like, I think that I'll be able to have more comprehensive opinions once I actually see, actually get to play the game. But for now, like... When I look at the screenshots and look at the side-by-sides in the videos, like, I do like a lot of the things. I like the fact that it'll have all of the DLC. I like that it'll have a universal character creator that's unified across all three different games. I like that we will have a the version of Female Shepard that was in Mass Effect 3 is going to be available across all three games. And she's kind of like, she's become the most popular vision of what uh, Female yeah. Shepard was all about. So there's a lot to love about this collection for sure but you still can't date Rex. Is that all you want to do is you want to date the Krogan? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take any Krogan, don't get me wrong. But I don't uh, think yeah. they can reproduce, or not easily, but I don't think you would want to re reproduce with a Krogan. No, it'd probably turn out really badly. That's one of the big things in the story is the Krogan genophage was basically 
deliberately limits the population of the Krogans and is now putting them basically on the verge of distinction because they can't reproduce easily. I actually wonder, um, did you ever grow up playing Master of Orion on the computer? I did. Because I actually wonder, there as there is a race of lizards in that game called the Sakura, and I always played as the Sakura, and mm. they were the same thing. They were expansionists, and they they reproduced like freaking crazy. And uh, I just wonder if maybe the Krogan were inspired in some way by that. Probably. I think, so the lore in the original Mass Effect was that, the backstory, as it were, was that the Krogan basically swept across the galaxy and were able to reproduce like rabbits and were a huge problem. And one of the founding council races decided to deal with the Krogan threat by introducing the genophage. And that is a, a, a story strand that carries through all three games. And there's a particular character who has a lot of angst about it. And it's actually mm-hmm. one of the strongest parts of the story, though how we'll read in the year of our Lord 2021 will be pretty interesting. That is a question, isn't it? Anyway, we also have a release date for Mass Effect Legendary Edition. It will be out in May which I think everybody was expecting it to be out in March, but maybe that's just a mark of how the pandemic has been messing everything up. Yeah, I'm actually surprised to hear it's May. I thought for sure it would be a lot sooner than that, maybe, as you said, March. Uh, But again, as we talked about, not last episode, maybe the episode before, the uh, COVID is still really affecting things out there, so we all got to be a little bit patient. Continuing on, uh, there's not a lot of other RPG news right now. I would say Mass Effect Legendary Edition sucked a lot of the oxygen out of that one. But Final Fantasy XII is coming to Game Pass. There's a lot of Final Fantasy on fa- Final Fantasies on there right now, including Final Fantasy VII and VIII. Uh, Nadia, we both ended up really enjoying Final Fantasy XII. We did. If you happen to have Game Pass and you have not played XII, I absolutely recommend this. Uh, I'm assuming, of course, it's the Zodiac edition. So, yeah, it's the the modernized version. I would mm-hmm. I would go for it. It took me a little bit to warm up to 12, but in the end, uh, I really did. Final Fantasy 12 was one of the candidates for our Pantheon of the Blood God Game Club, and it ended up coming in second to Final Fantasy 12. I was kind of surprised by how strong its performance was. People really like Viera. That's I meant Final Fantasy VIII, by the way. It came in second to Final Fantasy VIII. But Final Fantasy right. XII did have a very strong performance. And I think maybe it's because a lot of people haven't played it in a long time or don't know it as well as some of the other games. And we're like, well, maybe it would be an interesting to revisit this game. I think so. I feel like Twelve was always a little bit tangled up in controversy and got a little bit lost in the seat in the as a result. Because uh, we have talked about twelve extensively on other episodes that focused more on Final Fantasy, but just to put it briefly, I, I feel like it was overlooked because it had a lot of MO-like uh, elements that people were not too fond of. Because people were still a little bit angry that Eleven was an online game and Twelve, even though it wasn't online, it certainly looked like an online MMO in many ways. And despite the fact that it had a really fantastic story and really great settings. People weren't too happy about the battle system and the macro system and all that. Okay, this isn't a piece of news, Nadia, but it's a nice note to end on. Over on our Twitter, somebody shared this tweet from Taco, T-A-H-K-0. And it said, these are real screenshots from a real video game being made by a team consisting of original creators of classic Final Fantasy. And it's like these absolutely gorgeous looking models, almost like a diorama or a scale model, but with an RPG character on there. 
And they go on to say, this is a game called Fantasian by the studio Mistwalker. And in case you haven't figured it out already, they made the entire world out of actual models. It really has a, those classic pre-rendered background vibes. They're, it's really gorgeous, Nadia. It is. I, I saw the screenshots myself and I was uh, there was a shot of an inn that just made me double take because it was so realistic in that, as you said, yes, it was a little bit like a diorama, diorama-rama, and there's no other game that looks like it, and I think that counts for a lot. I don't know how it's going to play. I hope it plays well. It is, of course, the creator of Final Fantasy is on it, so I hope it does, and I really hope it, it, it does well and it stands out because, yeah, what a great-looking game. What Just so charming. It's going to be on Apple Arcade, so oh, it's right. not um, so much the the Terra Battle kind of situation. It's more of a prestige mobile game. So maybe I that really, means that. And Apple Arcade games have a tendency to come over to other platforms, so we may see it on a platform like the Nintendo Switch sooner rather than later. I think you're right. Usually, you're looking at about a year of exclusivity. I was actually extremely surprised when Granite, which I think it's called, the, the game by Cappy. When that came to that, when that leapt from Apple Arcade to Switch, and that just seemed like it was going to be exclusive forever, but I just uh, it, it was done after a year. So I said, "Oh, okay. Well, this seems to be the new the, the new paradigm, I guess." With apologies to Terra Battle, I'm just glad that Mistwalker's out there making real games again. <laughs> <laughs> As I have said in the past, Terra Battle had a lot of potential. There was a lot about it I loved. Fantastic soundtrack, but God, what a waste of a soundtrack because it was. Yeah, it was a mobile game, which, fine, I'm not going to condemn it for that immediately, but it had, it, it was just really rigged for the in-app purchases where you you had the paywall and the difficulty that was hard to get over unless you, you obeyed the paywall and paid up for better characters and all that. And that was really a disappointment. Okay, Nadia, that is all of the RPG news for this week. Let's continue on to our conversation with Austin Walker. Don't go away. Well, okay, I have the great Austin Walker with me, and he is the host of Friends at the Table, which is an actual play podcast. And also, I feel like we've been kind of in our individual orbits, but we haven't podcasted nearly enough. I think the first time maybe you were on the show was when we did that wonderful Mass Effect panel, Austin, at PAX West. Yeah, that was a blast and and reminded me how much uh, I loved Mass Effect and also talking about RPGs with people, a thing I don't do near enough. So thank you for having me. I'm not here. You're, you're not. Sorry. I didn't bring you on to talk about anything particular. We're just going to have kind of a relaxed conversation about RPGs in general, about the, the space, about tabletop RPGs, because I, I want to pick your brain on some things. And since I already mentioned Mass Effect... Uh, maybe we should just start off with that. What, <laughs> Dive right what in. are your takes on Mass Effect? So <laughs> you're with me. The original Mass Effect was our favorite. Yeah, I think Mass Effect, if we're going back to that panel, I think it was pretty clear that Mass Effect 1 is my favorite. It like scratches my brain the right way. And I hope that the remade version will too. I guess, again, I have to do this disclosure that I ran a bio or a, a Mass Effect tabletop role-playing game for <laughs> N7 Day in 2020. That was like a professional thing, so I have to disclose it. Uh, and, and, and also I'm a big Bioware fan and a big Mass Effect fan. Um, but, and like you, Mass Effect 1 is definitely the, the peak for me, I think. 
So what's your take on the remake or the remaster, I should say? I'm I'm like skeptical at this point, which okay. is kind of not fun to say. Um, I'm the, here. Here are the two things that make me. Here are the three things that make me skeptical. One is the choice of putting out like six images of lens flare. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't. I, I get how I get how a lens flare could go out of control after you do a, a remaster or a remake, or I guess it's a remaster where you're touching up the lighting effects and using algorithmic blah blah blah. I get how that happens. What I don't get is how then you curate a bunch of screenshots to emphasize the lens flare. That's um, that's very like early aughts when everyone was really into the yes. lens flare for their anime music videos. Yes, a hundred percent. And so like that's a choice. Two is that I'm. <sighs> You know, going through some of the Game Informer coverage, one of the things that came up in a conversation between some of the folks there was that from their interviews, they're starting at Mass Effect 3. That's kind of where they began the remaster process so they could create a baseline and then are trying to move everything towards that Mass Effect 3 tier of visual fidelity, but also game feel. Um, and so and so I, I'm a little nervous about what's going to happen to the way Mass Effect 1 feels, which is... I'm not saying that Mass Effect 1 is a perfect game by any means. I understand why people bounced off of some of its action combat feel. I get why they be- it becomes, you know, increasingly a cover shooter. And I like the cover shooter stuff. I-, I enjoy that stuff. I think that the way the weapons become increasingly differentiated in game feel is really smart in Mass Effect 2 and 3. Um, and I like that stuff. But what I don't want necessarily is to erase the friction of what that first game felt like. And that brings me to the third most important point. They're changing how the Mako handled, and I just can't mm. I can't deal with that. I think I need Really? I need you like OG the old kind of crazy Mako. I do. I like that Mako. That make <laughs> I like because I got good at that Mako in a way that felt like an accomplishment. <laughs> I think it's like it would be like what if Monster Hunter changed the way it's it's kind of very um, particular handling of weapons uh, worked um, to, to feel more like a devil may cry or something. Do you know what I mean? And maybe that's not the jump that they're going to make. Maybe they're not going to be as bold as that in the changes that they're talking about. But the fact that they haven't released gameplay mm. is part of my other, you know, feeling here is like, I want to see it. If I can see it and I can go like, okay, yeah, that still basically looks and feels like Mass Effect 1, then I'll be, then I'll be happy. Um, it reminds I'm me glad of... people will play it. That's the other thing. Like I do just I still like that series, even though I think I think some of the story beats might hit different in 2021 than when that game first came out um, in a way that's like it shows how far like political discourse and what we think of as like, what are the stories we want to spend our time telling? And do we want, for instance, to like have a, a genocidist on the party oh. as much as I love Morden Solis? It's like yeah. that story hits different in 2021 because we're all different people in the world. Has changed. <laughs> we are all different you people. Know? That's a good way to put it. Yes. We ran an article over at US Gamer, I think, last year where we were talking about how Shepard over time evolves into what amounts to a cop or a Jack Bauer yep. type. Yep, totally. And that's very 2000s in a way yes. that maybe doesn't resonate as much. Really, the original promise, if I think back to like the original EGM cover story on that game, was you could either be your kind of like smooth James Bond or your harsh Jack Bauer, right? Mm. Um, and and obviously you also then saw that in stuff like Alpha Protocol, which very much leaned in that direction. Um, but the... The game, oh, you're right, over the course of time just naturally moved you towards being more like 
a renegade even in your paragon solutions like because they they understood that hitting the button that makes you interject is a fun thing to do and so even the paragon options for that i think eventually became increasingly um you know active and and responsive in a way that like they weren't to begin with you, you went from being kind of a mediator in, in mass effect one to being an action hero by mass effect three uh, right yeah that's that's an actually interesting complaint uh, speaking from my point of view, as someone who uh, time to, to blasphemize in front of you, Austin, I'm sorry. I haven't played Mass Effect yet. So <sighs> I have to admit that I am looking forward to the remakes because this is an updated all-in-one mm-hmm. solution to my enormous Mass Effect gap. So I, I have to admit I am interested in what's going on here. It's cool that it's all going to be there. There's like a couple of pieces of, of DLC, I think, that don't make the jump. They lost the source code to Citadel Station. Fantastic. Which... Which is, I know, right? <laughs> it's a Mass Effect 1 DLC that was basically a high score, like, it's almost in some ways proto-multiplayer, um, because it's like, it's a battle arena in which you're fighting waves of enemies, um, and the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer actually kind of feels like it in some ways, in terms of, like, situational awareness and knowing how to deal with different types of enemy types. But the most important thing is, if you do really well, if you beat everything inside of Citadel Station, you get an apartment. You get you you. I think Anderson gives you his old apartment or something, which is out on some Mars-like planet, and you get this beautiful like vista from the from the apartment. It's like, well, Shepard doesn't have his or, or doesn't have their apartment anymore. That sucks. Like, I yeah. want my apartment back. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I want to look at it, the Marscape ah uh, desert. Yeah, just how I like it. Yes. Having my own quarters in Mass Effect Two isn't the same. Even if I'm, even if my, uh, what was her name? She would feed the fish. Oh God, was that yeah, um, your secretary? Your secretary, who <laughs> who I definitely lost my first playthrough of Mass oh, Effect Two. Oh no, you lost her. Yeah, you're dawdling. Play, you can't do that. I was dawdling a hundred percent. I was a hundred percent dawdling. I lost her. I think I saved Chakwas, but that's. But I, I forget what the breakdown is. God, what is her name? I can picture her and hear her voice in my head. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's screaming wow. at the podcast right now. Probably Eric Van Allen, who literally has a Mass Effect podcast. <laughs> yes, almost certainly. <laughs> he probably knows the whole history of her, everyone who you're talking about. What she eats for breakfast, yes. who her, her partner <laughs> is. I am looking forward to playing through Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 again. I last played them when they first came out, more or less. And I remember at the time thinking that Mass Effect 1, or Mass Effect 2 felt like a huge leap over Mass Effect 1, but there were so many things that I felt like were lost in the translation from mm-hmm. Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 2. I, one of my absolute favorite things about the original Mass Effect was that you would land on a planet and then you would walk through the door onto the planet for the first time. And it was a seamless transition that made the Normandy feel like a real place and not just a gameplay hub. Yeah. And I was always sad that that was lost in Mass Effect 2 and 3. That's a great mm. That's a great point. Yeah, that, and I really, really loved that feeling of, okay, What's up with this planet? I know I'm going to find three, you know, Turian insignias or whatever, and there's going to be a lot of just kind of repeated uh, locations. There's a lot of repeated interiors, which I'm so curious if they keep or if they add another 10 potential interior locations to be for, for you know, planet side stuff. Um, but but that experience of like, okay, what's going on here? Is there anything unique here? Oh my god, this planet has monkeys. Oh my god, this planet <laughs> has a cool meteor shower going on. I'm going to live on the monkey like, planet. 
I, the monkey planet is very cool. Listen, those monkeys, until they, they mess with your stuff, which they will do. <laughs> um, that's a, it, that stuff was just like, gave me that feeling of exploration, which uh, I don't think that the series ever really went for again. Mass Effect 2 and 3 had the kind of like short little missions on very, you know, uh, small custom made planet like locations. And that stuff was fun because it was like a nice little action corridor, um, but it was not the same thing as just being dropped onto a planet and like hoping you don't get run into a Thresher Maw. So, it's one of the wonderful things that I see in an RPG, or makes me really happy, is that feeling of tooling around a universe and being like, "What's over there? What's doing yes. that? What's that character thinking?" Mm-hmm. And then finally, suddenly falling into a whole dang storyline. And what the original Mass Effect offered was kind of a a proto version of that, but it definitely made the universe feel more lived in and the Normandy Mm -hmm. feel like more like a real place. And I think that that actually speaks to a lot of the moment in my like RPG fandom where I started playing more Western RPGs. You know, I think I'd already played coming you know through through the the 2000s i had already kind of started playing you know the elder scrolls games with with morrowind and had played other bioware stuff you know it's not that i hadn't had that background um you know i'd played baldur's gate 2 and and neverwinter nights and then had played obviously kotor and jade empire and uh what's the other xbox is there is there a third thing that i'm forgetting from that era of bioware Jade Empire? Did we already mention Jade Jade Empire? Empire, Yeah, so I played those and I liked those, but I was still like through college, I would say through the through like 2007, I was still a big JRPG person, Um, and and largely it was because even something like Kotor 2, let's say, where there was the ability to kind of go from at certain points to bounce around planets or take things at your own choice. um, uh, There was something about JRPGs that produced this sense that the world was bigger than where your linear path led you um and uh, i swear i'm not trying to tee up an anti-final fantasy 13 thing that's not <laughs> where this is going um uh, but but there, there was that sense and so i think about well, like when i was playing chrono trigger as a kid that gave me a sense of of largest or even even things that were much more guided than that still still had that as part of their aesthetic something like fantasy star online a game i must have dumped five six hundred hours into the year it came out oh really um cool oh i was a huge pso person and nice. so like even though that is a very straightforward game in terms of its dungeon design, there was such a sense of the world being vast because of combination of like aesthetic, uh, you know, character design, the way story was drip fed to you, the way you returned to spaces and variations in spaces. All that stuff was so important to me as an RPG fan. Um, and then I think when I played Mass Effect one that sense of just like like you said kind of tooling around the universe seemed so big and then i think from there to jump to like fallout 3 um uh was was similar in some ways to that that sense of like okay i can make my own path here um i guess i we should probably say oblivion also did that and obviously morrowind did too but like there's something about those spaces that felt more constrained than say final fan the world of final fantasy 7 or something mm-hmm. where we, when you leave Midgar, you're like, oh my god. And then and then obviously, you know, in the, in the later half of the game, when you think about the breadth of, of places you, you've been to, um, and it's not, that, it's not that JRPGs have stopped doing that by any means. Like, I don't want to say that, like, that's been a switch. Again, I'm not I'm not teeing up an anti-Final Fantasy thirteen thing. <laughs> I think if you look at, like, Final Fantasy fifteen or you look at the Xenoblade uh, uh, series of games, they do this extremely well. I put a ton of hours into Xenoblade Chronicles X. But there was something about that sense of... You know, and maybe Witcher 3 does this really well, too, that sense of like, all right, 
I'm going out on a journey. I'm going to land my ship or I'm going to get on my horse. I'm going to prepare for this thing. I'm going to check over all my equipment. I'm going to level up all my characters. And then we're going to go out there and go do the thing. That cycle became increasingly pleasurable to me. Um, and, and I think that, that that happened around the Mass Effect era for me. Final Fantasy XV tried to do that. And it did. It hit a certain kind of loop that I really enjoyed. Uh, the feeling of being out there in the field and you're meeting lots of monsters and everything. And then you come back around the campfire and you're there with yeah. the boys and cooking. Just, just guys being dudes. I need to, I really need to go back to 15. So I got to, what's the big city um, where you go over across the river? Mm. Or not the river, like, you, know you go across the about? ocean play, to get there. You go across and, the ocean. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it plays that incredible like waltz as you're approaching, yeah. And it's like it's like Venice basically, but Final Fantasy. Uh, it's and it's beautiful. And I was like, this is the best. I can't wait to play more of this game. And then I got hit with the games journalist curse, which was like I had to put the game down for a week <laughs> to go cover something else, I and I never came back to it. Also, at the time, I was playing at launch, and everyone said the next chapter after that was the really bad stealth sequence. Mm. And so I was like, well, I'll wait until they patch that, and then they patch it. But by then, I'd moved on. So I've been thinking about restarting that game especially after how much i loved the seven remake so i feel like i'm i'm in in that space in, in some ways so you're in a final fantasy mood uh, yeah yeah well yes the other final fantasy thing in my life is 14 which hell yes i need to decide whether or not to go back to and i feel it's gravity pulling me as we get closer and closer to an announcement about the oh, next expansion. I, I am so hyped at the time we were recording this the announcement will be coming this friday have you have you finished oh, wow. shadowbringers no, so this is the thing. I fell off in 4X, right? Uh -huh. In the patches after after uh, Stormblood. Uh -huh. And I liked Stormblood well enough. Like, I really liked Heaven's Word. Okay, hmm. Okay, so the real truth of it is I put, you know, hundreds of hours into this game at this point, and I still don't know that it was worth it, even though I really liked Heaven's Word and even parts of Stormblood, because that opening, like, 100 hours, it just goes and goes and... I really don't like the the stuff in in the base in in a realm reborn's like base campaign. It's not that it's, it's not that it's bad. It's just that it like takes so long to get anywhere. Yeah, your character as a as a character or as a as a kind of game, there's just nothing going on with your abilities. Your rotation is so boring in the early game, um, and I bounced around from class to class to try to find something that clicked for me. Um, yeah, but by, by the, the time, time you get to the banquet, it really. Really yeah, I up. mean, listen, the banquet rules. Like, I think that, like the end of that game is incredible. Like, the end of that 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 like campaign, that arc uh -huh. has some real high moments. I think some of the boss fights start to get increasingly interesting. Um, I think some of the side content can get really good. Uh, you, but, you, but there is just you really sorry. You really have to do Shadowbringers. Like, I'm not just like talking out of my ass. I know here. this. I believe. Well, this is what I'm saying. It's like I'm gonna get pulled back into good. it, but I have to get through. I have to get th through the Stormblood. Uh, patches first and it, they've been a slog in a way that's just like sad have uh, um, so have people I'll started disappearing there. in your story yet no okay, not, that, not yet because that's when it gets saying. incredible like, I'm, I'm at the i'm at the start towards the start of them in a way that's like i know things are going to start going good i know that there's going to be a turn and i want to be happy at some point uh, um and be excited but like Everyone I know has told me Shadowbringers is the best is the best Final Fantasy story. It, it is. Told, it is probably my is second favorite, next to six. Six. I just have so okay. much nostalgia. Six is for. great. Yeah, same, same, same. But same. Shadowbringers just destroyed me emotionally. Because um, you're right, the the Asians who you meet in the first uh, expansion are like, oh yeah, 
you're just Final Fantasy villains, whatever, who cares? Yeah, totally. But totally. they're so built up. They're built up so well in, in Shadowbringers, and they just destroyed my heart. And, oh, just talking about it makes me want to cry. <laughs> Sorry, Final Fantasy XIV. Your heart cell. <laughs> no, it's it's a great, it's a it's a really cool game. I'm like, I'm so I'm playing Red Mage. I really love yeah, the rotation on Red beautiful. Mage. Um, I'm actually playing Red Mage on a controller and have a I forget what I haven't played it in in a while now, but like my custom like layout that I built is so fun to hit. It almost feels mm-hmm. like a rhythm game, mm-hmm. which is also just how it's built. I mean, Red Mage is built like that because you're looking for stuff to proc and then you're bouncing between the your your kind of different kind of subtrees of of attack spell. Um, but the way I had it set up with like triggers and face buttons made it feel like almost like i'm moving my hands around yeah. to like cast these spells in fun ways um and that was a blast so so, so yeah I have, I have like a god i forget what my levels even are but red mage was was maxed out for the the patches for 4x and then i had a pretty high samurai which i know is a very selfish class but is also a pretty fun class to play <laughs> and just like brain off kill things um uh and i started i'm like i'm the the biggest truth of it is I like playing classes that have some utility because I like to be useful to the party, which is part of why I play Red Mage because Red Mage has a res and being able to res a healer feels like the you've done the mm. best thing in the world, for instance. Um, but then still primarily I'm just doing damage. But playing a full-time healer is the most stressful thing in, in the world. I, I, yeah, I have a friend who does that. I'm like, I don't know how you do Braver that. Braver than the troops. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't be me. But she says, I really like helping people and this is just uh, who I think I am. And I said, well... Kudos to you, and good luck when the tank totally. pulls, like, ten mobs, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, totally. Nadia is trying to get me to play Final Fantasy fourteen. That's one of the incentives in our Patreon. We're about $260 oh away from it. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen That's at some to, point. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and then I got, like, a thousand hours to put into Final Fantasy fourteen. You're going to Catboy Hell. It's a long game. It's a long game even if you mainline just story main, main story quests and... Uh, your like plus icon quests that give you stuff. Even if you ignore all other side stuff, it's just a big game. Well, you're gonna have the the whole Blood God Discord to help you. Like it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. I think that's true. That's true. Yeah, we got a pretty dedicated Final Fantasy 14 audience. Um, on that note, I'm kind of curious. Where do you fall on the story versus systems uh, kind of? ledger or is that a false dichotomy to you i mean you know that i'm going to say it's a false dichotomy right and that these things are like that mm-hmm. systems are a vector for storytelling and that uh you know story is, is a space that can help you imagine and understand systems and all that but given that i actually have like a really interesting feeling about this as myself and it's it's, it's one of the things that i'm most um conflicted over as a as a critic um mm. because I'm at my best as a critic when I'm engaging with gameplay systems, unpacking the meaning that they that they create, the ways in which they are a part of telling the story, and even just talking about what works and what doesn't, right? Like, I think my sharpest writing is when I've identified something inside of um, a gameplay design uh, that functions really well, and I highlight it in a way that readers go like, oh, yeah, that's that thing I was feeling. Or I identify something that's broken and doesn't work right, and they go like, damn, yeah, that's why I wasn't having a good time. I didn't have words for it. That said, I am such a, and to put it in board game terms, I'm an Ameritrash player, not a Euro game, not a Euro uh, game aficionado. Mm-hmm. I like theme so much. I like it when the aesthetics are good, when I respond well. I, I, I'm pulled in by setting and story and character and uh, art 
uh, and music more than I am by raw design. And a really good example from this is something like Monster Train, which is clearly an incredibly designed uh, a deck builder that, that hit you know uh, PCs last year. A great evolution of um, uh, what like Slay the Spire did, for instance. Um, uh, fan- both of those are fantastic games. Um, and I bounced off Monster Train so hard because I just res- I, my whole body hates the <laughs> the character design in, in that game. And I, it's not bad. I just don't like it. Do you know what I mean? I, I think that it executes on the thing they're going for pretty well. It's just not a thing I'm going for. And I contrast that with something like um, another another uh, deck builder that came out last year that should be on everyone's radar. Uh, it came out in early access last year called Gordian Quest. Um, which, if you don't know it, you should look it up. It's just, it, it looks like a certain era of fantasy anime um, that resonates with me so well. Uh, and it's it's similarly a deck builder that's drawing on, in this case, it's drawing on, like, uh, Darkest Dungeon uh, in terms of, like, character placement. It's a, it's a little bit different than Darkest Dungeon because it has both rows and columns. Um, but it's not, it's not like a brilliant game. It's a game where the numbers go up and where the characters are a little more, um, in, in many ways, they're just, like, a little more traditional in design than Monster Train. Um, and... It totally hit. You know, I think it's. I don't think it's as sharp uh, as a, as a game in terms of game design. But at the end of the day, I like looking at that world and those characters so much more that I put way more time into it. And that's, in some ways, I think that's like a flaw of mine as a critic. Except that I'm aware of it, and so like I do my best to check myself <laughs> on that stuff and and make sure that I'm not, um, you know, especially when I'm like assigned a review or whatever that i'm not leading to leaning too hard in that direction i'm totally with you austin i think one of the reasons that i was having a hard time initially with witcher 3 was that even though i enjoyed the systems and i enjoyed the world and i enjoyed the characters there was just Mm -hmm. i think the fact that i was playing as Geralt, a character that i didn't particularly like initially because i just saw him as medieval batman i did not connect at all (laughs) with this character which caused a like major friction with the the world and the game yeah. at large. And it wasn't until I put a masquerade ball fox mask on his face that <laughs> suddenly I was like, yes, this is my character now. And then I could totally engage with it. And I was like, I'm that's into Triss, I'm into the relationships, and now I love Witcher 3. Totally. I that's mean, listen, that's, that's totally understandable. That is so much about, I mean, if we go back to Mass Effect for a second, right? You know, I, I still default to saying he, him for Shepard, even though I know that Jennifer Hale did a better job as a voice actress and is like the canonical, not did a better job, but is, is, is more fondly remembered. Uh, and, and that Femme Shep has definitely become quote unquote the, the, the canon Shep in a lot of people's minds. But for me, I was able to play as like, a big black dude in a video game uh, in, in an RPG mm. felt so distinct for me at the time that like, I just, that's how I played through all of those games and, and that connection with your characters. And I don't think that needs to be in every game. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that like I need character creation in every game. I was surprised. I just booted up Neo two the other day because it's out on PS five and PC now. And there was character creation at the top. And I'd forgotten that they'd added that since the first game in that series just had you playing basically a Geralt. What if Geralt woke up on, <laughs> he was shipped off to, Japan uh you're playing William <laughs> I forget his last name some guy named William yeah uh-huh um and, and so like I, I like it when it's in games but I don't think it needs to be at the same time right like I'm happy to play especially JRPGs where they have very well realized characters who are who are you know written and and acted in ways that are memorable so that doesn't have to happen for me but you're I'm totally with you with with Gerald it took me so long to 
connect to who he was supposed to be and what was supposed to be the like why i was supposed to care about this guy um and then and then there was a moment when you know there's that bit where you go to there's that city off to the east i want to say and you're looking for the baron's daughter the bloody baron's daughter and you go into this house and this cat just looks at you and you look at this cat and you have this like moment where you're like okay what's up with this cat why am i is this cat seeing through me right now? What's happening? And in that that moment, I realized, oh, I've come around on Geralt. I actually like Geralt quite a bit. He has he's he's not the kind of loud, you know, mm-hmm. Batmany. Like that's not that's not all he is. He has this other kind of melancholy, kind of slightly removed vibe that is really fascinating to me. Yeah, we're doing a Witcher watch right now yeah, for the Netflix on our yeah. one of our other podcasts, and they. I really like the portrayal of Geralt by Henry Cavill, but they haven't quite got to that part of yes. Geralt's personality. He's still bat- medieval Batman. Mm-hmm. He, he oh, has sorry, his no, I just said, moments, though. I know I just said that unlike Batman, he can be melancholy and removed. <laughs> That's also the things Batman can be. So like, you cut me some slack. Sometimes you just talk into a microphone. No, I understand. <laughs> so I want to check something with you really quickly. You mentioned, uh, I think you might have mentioned that you were playing Neo 2. Question. Yeah. RPG or not an RPG? And I know it probably doesn't matter, but I like assigning arbitrary designations to things. I think it's an RPG. It's an action RPG for sure. Sure. Like, I don't, I think, like, what what do we, I'm like, you got me Googling. It's like, (laughs) if, I think if Dark Souls is an RPG. That's the thing. It's like, the point of contention on this podcast is that Dark Souls is not an RPG, and that's why we didn't include it. Is Dragon's Dogma an RPG? I don't know. Uh, I think that any game that puts a large emphasis on exploration or action over character development um, and actually mm. doing role playing is going to necessarily be an action game. Like, there's definitely a mix, but I find it's useful to kind of delineate these particular genres so that I can have a better understanding of what the developers are actually trying to accomplish and therefore the game is trying to accomplish. Yeah. I think the thing, the actual thing for Neo 2 that makes me think it, it that would make me lean towards action game with numbers instead of rpg mm-hmm. is the ways in which you go in and out of levels as if on missions versus um it being a contiguous world that you're constantly exploring right um for me the souls games dragon's dogma fit that have that element of it be and that's so important to me as an rpg is like you're in the world and there is no outside of the world really uh you know obviously demon souls um has has you know an exception to that because like you're going back to a, a nexus and going off into those worlds and, and neo 2 is, is much more like that in some ways right where you're you're you have a hub and then you're going off on like here is a mission i'm going to go repeat this area and and fight a different boss or whatever right and so i think that part of it is maybe the part of it that would make me f- say it's it's not it doesn't quite fit there but i'm also in general very generous with with categories um and i'd rather have rpg include everything from you know final fantasy 6 to skyrim to path of exile to dragon's dogma to neo 2 to you know there are obviously going to be edge cases like do i think monster hunter is an rpg and i think that's where i say no because it's not really about character development it's about gear development and that's a very arbitrary decision i, I can't defend that decision <laughs> but you know well, it all goes back to Dungeons and Dragons at the end of the day, right? A game which was 
got its start as going through a big old dungeon and didn't necessarily have a lot yeah, of story. Totally. Like the character development was important, but really it was more about managing your gear and fighting off monsters and that kind of thing. It, it got, which in, in turn went back to war gaming. So I guess you could say that if you wanted to, so many of these games like Neo 2 sprang directly from classic first, di- first edition Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Right, you're going through you're going through the dungeon. You're you're completely focused on that style of thing. Um, God, where was I just reading? I was just reading something about the history of um, of wargaming and and kind of pre RPG RPGs um, and and the ways in which like the old, in some ways, the discourse around how free you were from the rules to do like open role play almost even inside of war games was a thing that was happening like a hundred years ago in a way that's like these are the same conversations that people are having today in real ways um and it's it's extremely funny to to dig into that stuff i love that Um, though i just love that aspect of humanity just the yeah there's always been storytellers and shit posters Here's the thing. I like it when it's like, wow, 100 years ago, people were having the same conversations as we were, or as we are now. What I don't like is, wow, six years ago, we already had this conversation. Why does no one remember that we had this conversation already? <laughs> I'm exhausted by, re- you know, returning yeah. to the same discourse, even though I understand that young people are constantly coming into this space and need to learn things and have conversations. It can still just be so, it can feel so dire to return to old questions like that. Makes you, you feel know? old. It makes me feel old. It makes me feel old. More importantly, it makes me feel like we didn't get it done. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, like it, it emphasizes that, that talking through this once did not actually solve anything. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I think about stuff like, like in my mind at the time, you know, there was a huge debate, for instance, in 20, I want to say 2015, 2015, 2016, um, among kind of between um, the established, what was being situated as, let's say, established gaming intelligentsia uh, inside of the like academy, the sort of like Frank Lances and Ian Bogosts of the world, versus an emerging critical um, cohort um, that that I was part of, along with people like Lana Polanski and Cameron Kunzelman and Zelani Stort. This kind of like very positioned ourselves as the avant garde, right? Um, about about formalism and about whether or not. Uh, there was an overemphasis on the formal inside of the kind of status quo establishment game critical field, right? Um, and and that debate was like really loud and and big and like across. It was like one of those classic blogosphere style debates mm. where like people were firing shots back and forth with like fifteen hundred word blog posts, you know. And that was really <laughs> fascinating and productive. And you know, everyone was on the you know on the same page in terms of. This is a productive conversation to have. Um, I think maybe it got a little it got a little rough here or there because that's the way these things go. Um, but it was a really productive conversation. And now it's like that conversation didn't happen. There's no there's record of like you can go read Critical Distance probably and see and track that down. But no one's do not enough people are doing that for it to have had a long term effect. Um, and and it's one of those things that can be kind of disheartening. I think as a critic to be like, okay this space is so overwhelmingly disinterested in the critical conversation that it's hard to shift the kind of general 
feeling about something. Right. Like we talk about something like I joked about Final Fantasy 13 and linearity before, but think about all of the conversations people had at the time about that game and and whether or not, you know, that linearity took things away from it, whether or not it even was quote unquote more linear than past uh Final Fantasy games or if it just kind of appeared that way because they didn't do the same job of hiding linearity. Uh, all those kind of questions, uh, you know, all the stuff around around hey, how much time should a player be expected to blah, blah, blah. And I, I really think in the pop cultural mind, what we're left with is just, yeah, that game is really linear. It takes too long to get to an open part. And <laughs> all of that this discourse has just like melted away with time. And that's fine, but it's it also kind of stings. You know? I understand. Do you think the conversation yeah. hasn't advanced at all in the past like 10 years or so? Because I mean, from no, my I vantage point, at least, I mean, the conversation around games is so vastly different from when I first came in in like 2008. I think you're totally right. I think mm-hmm. it 100% has advanced. I think the conversation we are having now would not have happened 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, the conversations about the discourse of games were not really things that had an audience a decade ago outside of you know, very particular, you know, the blogosphere or specific podcasts or something, but but it was not part of a larger conversation, really. Um, and I think that I think that especially in terms of, hey, what's this game mean? What's this thing saying about its themes and its ideas and politics and and then also just the side of just like who is getting to share what they like separate from, um, you know, con- conversations about what something might mean even just like who gets to say this what is good uh has definitely changed in the last decade you know i think cat your and my voices a decade ago would have been huge um uh, outliers when we were writing um i get you, you were you were definitely writing 10 years ago right that's not just my yeah. mind playing tricks on me i was around um, in 2008 yep <laughs> yeah i was gonna say right um and so i think like we were definitely on the margin in a real way not that we're not still now but like we've both run websites <laughs> um, <laughs> that didn't that would not have happened a decade ago um, and i think because of that there's been a change in um who has the microphone in, in a real way and that's really nice um and then and then in some ways it's also just like the way games have changed, I think, has helped change what the discourse is, right? The the independent scene is such a different place today than it was a decade ago. We've moved, finally, I think, moved away from the kind of boy genius model of talking about independent games, um, uh, where it's John Blow and Ed McMillan, and like that's what mm-hmm. we think of as like an indie game. And, and today that we understand that there are like scales to these things, and there are everything from little tiny kind of queer uh, uh, game jam style tiny games to what we consider an independent game being something that comes from like a studio of 80 people um, and and that I think has helped change the way we end up talking about games on top of everything else like short games are now much more acceptable you know we, I think you and I can probably both think about think back to like what did we write or how what were the conversations we were having around when portal came out? And when people were like, "Is Portal too short of a game?" Right, I remember. And that. now the idea that there, there, that would be a thing is, I think, we have a space for those games now. We know how to categorize those games now. So I, I think it's not that discourse doesn't change; it's that it's like always changing. It's just that sometimes it changes back into itself. <laughs> sometimes the majority of it changes back into familiar forms, uh, more often than not. You know, progress isn't a given. 
And I would also say that, I mean, the times have changed, certainly the way that we understand our relationship to politics, to race, to what's happening in the streets and what's happening to the systems of power has definitely kind of filtered its way into the game space. Uh, I'm curious, like, what can RPGs add to that particular conversation? I think it's interesting and and funny. I think, like, you know, I just was talking about, obviously, video games a a moment ago with the independent scene, but the the same thing has happened inside of the tabletop space, right? Um, You mentioned up top that that I'm the host of Friends at the Table, which is an actual play podcast where we play a whole range of tabletop role-playing games. And the last, like, 15 years, 16 years has been this interesting arc and a, not a not a dissimilar one to the one we kind of just set up in terms of in, indie role or indie video games um, of the ways in which I'm, I'm always hesitant to say the democratization of because it's such a loaded phrase, but certainly the broadening of who gets to make games and tell stories uh, in, in the tabletop space as, as well as in the video game space. Um, and I think the big stuff for me when I think about RPGs is these are spaces where we are asked to conceptualize things at a scale um, and with detail that I don't know that the rest of the world asks us to do, really. Um, you're a participant in the world and in history, even if you're playing in some playing in a game that's like or playing a game that's a very small scale thing. Um, I think that part of the reason why people resonate RPGs resonate with people is there a space that says, "Hey, the world is historical. Things happen. Things change, and you're an agent in that." Now, do they say that like the individual is more important than anything else? Sometimes, like yes, absolutely. You know, I don't know that anyone has ever been in, as important to the world as my Inquisitor and in Dragon Age Inquisition <laughs> is. Um, no one has had that. No single person has had that much effect. Um, but but really great RPGs, and I think this includes Inquisition, uh, are are tend to be really good at also situating. Uh, player agency along with sort of historical systems and structures of power and organizations. My favorite thing. Um, have you both played through Inquisition and, and the have, DLC? Yeah. No, okay. I, I was. I kind of bounced off the first Dragon Age and just never really went back. I've, I've always Fair been enough. a little frustrated by the conversation around Dragon Age Inquisition because, and maybe I've con- contributed to that as well. Maybe <laughs> I've been a little bit dismissive of it over the years because it tends to be compared maybe somewhat unfairly to Witcher 3, but when I played yeah. it at the time, there were a lot of things that I actually really enjoyed about it. Um, oh, yeah. I, I thought everybody got really hung up on the the fetch quests and ignored the really excellent moments, like the Masquerade Ball and The Masquerade and like Ball that. is fantastic. I think a lot of the, the... There are some set pieces in that game that are as strong as anything Bioware has ever made. Um, and I think my, one of my favorite things is at the very end of the final DLC for that game, Trespasser, I'm not going to give big spoilers to this, but the premise of it is, hey, you did the thing, you good job, you beat the game, <laughs> you can't have an army anymore, you're not allowed, <laughs> the big countries basically call you to court and say like, all right, well, you have a castle filled with an army that is super loyal to you because of being a hero and saving the day and all that, that's scary to us because we're the countries. You're a person. You should, you're not a king. You don't, you shouldn't have any sovereignty. And I loved that moment in that game because it was one of those 
like the other foot dropped, the other shoe dropped moments mm-hmm. that understood the ways in which actual states would respond to someone suddenly showing up and filling a power vacuum and becoming a threat to their own legitimacy and power. Um, and well, also, what's the real life happens- equivalent of that? ISIS. Right. Sure. Totally. Yeah. Right. A hundred percent. Right. Um, and I think that that ends up being part of this. Why I think RPGs are great is because you can you can think through those sorts of big picture things. Um, and I think that's also true in the tabletop space, though, in some ways it goes the other way. I think tabletop role playing games are so good because they are a place that you can take chances and fail with little consequence. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's consequence because your character could die or you could lose out on something that you wanted. But failing is like a good thing. And in life, failing is really dangerous, especially if you are marginalized in some way Mm -hmm. where the costs of failure can be uh, impossible to kind of claw yourself back from or could have, for instance, an immediate and violent repercussion. Um, In a a role-playing game, I can be the kind of person who is like angry and loud about my desire for justice without potentially being shot for it you know um and that is that makes that space fun and freeing and cathartic for a lot of people i think um and for me beyond that sort of just like power fantasy part of it when i run tabletop rpgs like the ones that we do on front of the table i i, I think about those spaces as and, and those games as places where we can think through big almost like problematics more than problems like hey what is the what is the relationship between um uh you know so this past season on friends of the table was a mech season we played an incredible game called beam saber by a developer designer named austin ramsay um uh that game is great it's based on the blades in the dark system which is one of my favorite kind of going systems um it really captures the like intensity and rivalries and uh politics of something like gundam really well and we used it to kind of tell this story about a space empire um and what it means to try to build some sort of revolution or resistance in a space like that where it's even it's hard for people to even imagine overthrowing a space empire if you're really living in it you know star wars starts with the rebellion already existing but like how do you get from zero to there um and having a space to kind of tell that sort of story and then mechanize that story through gameplay rules um through having you know character progression systems having relationship bonds written out between different characters and having people who have their drives and goals that they're working towards and seeing how those things all intersect and the ways in which players and organizations have to compromise with each other if they want to get things done all that stuff was so fun to play out and that's not Daily life, if you're not playing video games, does not give us a lot of space to do that sort of participatory imaginative activity. Um, I guess if you're writing fanfic or writing fiction in general, if you're do, if you're you have an art practice in some way, you're doing that sort of creative work. Um, but I think for a lot of people, they don't have that space. They have a much more consumption focused thing. Mm-hmm. Where like, I'll go watch a movie or I'll read a book, and those are really useful. And I think those are interactive too. But playing a game and thinking again, going back to like the first Dragon Age, right? Thinking like getting the lands meet at the end of Dragon Age Origins, where you're like, okay, how are we going to recreate? Like, what decisions are we making about the future of this kingdom? It's a big question, and I love that games and RPGs specifically put you in that role. The thing that struck me when I was playing tabletop RPGs, I was playing, like, Shadowrun and that kind of thing, yeah, was that okay, sure, it, same. 
enforces a lot of critical thinking because you have mm. to think, okay, well, how am I going to advance the story on the fly right now? The GM's looking at me. What am I going to do? <laughs> Crap. Give me the stink eye. I mean, I, I also it's kind of unnerving. Just love <laughs> the other half of this. That's great. It, uh, this actually reminds me of games like uh, Fantasy Life, a game yeah. that I adore. Is like RPGs are a place where the numbers go up. Yeah, you do good, the numbers go up, and that feels good because sometimes in real life you do good and the numbers do not go up. You do your best work you've ever done, the numbers do not go up. No one read that piece. No one clicked on that link. Uh, and or not as many people as you needed to or wanted to, um, you know, you, you did a, a good job uh, working with other people on a project in school and you still didn't get the grade you think maybe you deserved. In RPGs, you can focus in on that stuff and and it can be a place where you can be expressive about the type of like interaction that just like tickles you. Like I, it's fun to look at. Again, I just started playing Neo 2 and I'm like, OK, ooh, am I going to do a poison ninjutsu build? Am I going to do some sort of like paralysis based magic build like what what direction am i going in and and that sort of like not only are the numbers going up but the numbers going up in a way that's pleasing to me that can kind of feel like snapping a puzzle piece in place but for taste instead of for just like here's a puzzle in front of me rpgs are so good at that and and i love that experience so much the thing that i found really interesting about the way that you approach friends at the table is how at pains you are to do the world building and set the context and everything so that everybody feels really grounded in mm. everything that's happening around them. Like what's the impulse behind that? I think it gets the best play out of the rest of the players. It's, it's sort of like um, you as a GM, I know what I, th what I think the situation looks like in my head and what potential outcomes could come from that situation. But for both players and then obviously the podcast for listeners i need to do my best of like getting that situation out of my head and into their minds and if i do that well what i found is for players the uh, the, the kind of possibility space opens up right if i say that there is um that you're fighting in a courtyard and there is, you know, an, an army of skeletons coming this way. What do you do? You're going to look at your sheet and you're going to go like, well, I have this move that's like, I guess it's plus one to skeletons. I'll do that. And like, that's fine. That's not a bad situation. But if I'm like, all right, you're in a courtyard and over on the left, there's a bunch of dummies and people have been practicing on the dummies. In the middle, there is like a big fountain uh, that's spraying water, you know, everywhere. And then over to the right, there are some bushes. Um, suddenly the player would be like, oh, the bushes, I can, I can hide behind the bushes before the skeletons get here and then get a, get a, get the drop on them. Or the, someone could say, oh, I could bless the water and turn it into holy water and then break the fountain and the water will go over. You know what I mean? Like suddenly everyone is on the same page, but also, they start to think more cinematically and more open about what a situation is. And I mean that both in terms of like that very direct action situation I just described, but also in terms of life, uh, what people do during a downtime situation in between the kind of big action pieces, um, where they're positioning themselves between political factions and other stuff. Um, and if I do a good job of that, I get surprised, right? It's like I set up a situation the player comes up with something I didn't think of because they have enough like Lego pieces to build something new. And then I go, oh, that's sick. That's awesome. And then the, the audience goes, oh, that's sick. That's awesome. And that's a good podcast, you know? Well, Austin, we're running out of time, but we I think that our audience would be really mad if we didn't talk about robots just a little <laughs> bit. A little bit at least. I do a little bit we of were, 
We were just on a Retronauts where we were talking at some length about Gundam, and also you've been part of the Great Gundam Project podcast recently, where you've been talking about Gundam X. I have, and Gundam X, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm enjoying it. Um, Boy, it, there are some it inspires good... a lot of passion in its it audience, does. and and also in the development team. I can't think of a Gundam like writer team or development team that seems as affectionate toward Gundam X as the original uh, creators of that show. Totally. I have a question for you. What is your favorite mecha or mech RPG? Ooh. My favorite mech RPG? Yeah. Like tabletop RPG or Ooh. like actual like video game? Uh, video games too. Absolutely. I really enjoyed Into the Breach. It wasn't an RPG, but I thought it captured <laughs> just having the different variants of robots mm-hmm. that I could use to the, to the fight the kaiju uh, was really enjoyable. Normally, I would definitely hew toward more of a, a political thing. I mean... Obviously, I loved Mech Warrior back in the day. I love Super sure, Robot sure. Wars. <laughs> of course, you do. I've heard that course, about you. Yeah, yeah, you Small might have heard. Rumor. But this was go- we were going to have a Super Robot Wars conversation, and I had to yes. admit to you that it's been like a decade since I've played through all the way through a Super Robot Wars game, which is heartbreaking. Like what, what I had was to the tell one that you, you played that- through. I mean, I played through like I played through the Alpha series back okay. in college, basically, and I I played through previous like I, um, I played through some of the SNES ones via ROMs when I was in high school. You know, like I was I was in on it in that way, um, and I just haven't revisited it in over a decade, which is which saying it to you like broke my heart because I hadn't <laughs> reckoned with you're that ashamed post. of your words and deeds. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, growing up for me, like Xenogears was huge, and then the Front Mission series that came out here, at least the parts of them that came out here, at least, uh, were really good. Um, I, I have, have, have you ever played the English translation of Front Mission Five? Five I is the one. That, no, um, it's interesting. You should check it out. It's like if you want like political drama, front you know mech combat stuff. It's worth digging, trying to get that working because it's. I don't know that the story is as strong as some of the past Front Mission games, but it's told in such detail. Um, I really, I ended up really liking it. I think you might, you might enjoy it. You were playing BattleTech for a bit too. Oh, I, I BattleTech is, might be my most played Steam game. No, that's not true. It's Final Fantasy fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> one of us. One of us. Uh, but I have like a hundred and fifty hours in BattleTech. Um, I love that game. I think that that Hairbrain schemes had already been, had already established themselves as a really sharp, independent RPG developer uh, with the Shadowrun games. Um, I don't think Shadowrun Returns is particularly great, but I think that Dragonfall is fantastic, and I really like um, Hong Kong. Uh, And then Battletech just totally scratched the itch for me. I think it's a brilliant tactical RPG. Um, And and I'm I'm like, tactical RPGs might be my favorite, like, sub-RPG space. Mine too, yeah. Um, I just, I, going back to Final Fantasy Tactics or even, even, you know, I think even before that, I think if I went back to like, um, God, there's, there's, I guess it was probably some of the, the early, like Romance of the Three Kingdoms SNES games that I played where I was like, oh, thinking about a, a almost chess-like tactics board or even, I guess like stuff like Shining Force even, right? right. Um, or places where I was, I was like ex- exploring that space in a way that that made me really enjoy again that sort of the sort of like problem solving side of of tactical rpgs um and then and then years later like 
coming into understanding that there was this whole other side of like the tactics genre with things like XCOM really opened my eyes when I finally like had a PC that was good enough to play <laughs> PC games. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just absolutely, uh, absolutely love Battletech. People should play that game. It's, it's fantastic. Austin, if you're watching Gundam X right now, maybe consider playing Super Robot Wars Z for okay. the PS2. It's not been translated into English and it's a little bit difficult to obtain, but it's probably mm-hmm. the best pure Super Robot Wars game. And huh, it okay. has it manages to combine the stories of Gundam X, Zabungle, and Turn A Gundam in a way that's very satisfying. Oh, that's to a me. fantastic collection. Yeah. Also, I actually fa- I figured out the thing that I was trying to reach for, but I wasn't one hundred percent sure of. The first tactics game that I lost time to, as like, oh my god, I'm gonna be late for school, was Godzilla Two: War of the Monsters for the NES. Oh, beautiful! Oh, wow. Deep. I, I was like. I, yeah, it's a deep pool. But I remember staring at my screen and just agonizing over, like, where to put my artillery cannons. Because that's a game in which you're, con- you're controlling a military force trying to stop Godzilla. So that's not the creepypasta um, one. That was the first one. That I think the first one is the creepypasta yeah, okay. one. Yeah, that's why I, was, I had to Google it. And I was like, wait, no, it's not this one. This is a side-scroller. This is a different thing. Um, but no, yeah, you end up, you end up, it's, it's, it's a fantastic, uh, it's, a, it's, I'm, no, it's not. I don't, I have no idea if it's any good or not. But when I was six or seven and played it, I loved it. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's much more of an advanced wars than a, than a, than a, let's say a fire emblem, right? But, but. You know that that ends up being the space that I think I'm. I, I love the most. I love Valkyria Chronicles. I love Fire Emblem. I love um, you know the, the kind of again the PC Western side of of tactics games too. So I want a new tactical RPG so bad. I want them to just please. Actually, what I really want, if I could, if I could have one thing in 2021 in the world of video games, it would just be put Final Fantasy Tactics on pc or on ps5 or or xbox yeah, series X. That would, you know put it on, on contemporary consoles. liberate it liberate it really. liberate it please <sighs> anyway <laughs> that's where i'm at all right austin we're out of time um man this like this hour flew by but i really enjoyed chatting with you let's have Indeed. you back again real soon totally and also where can we find you in the meantime you can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore Walker. You can find Friends at the Table at Friends underscore Table or Friends at the Table dot Cash, which is the Patreon page. Um, and then uh, Great Gundam Project is a one dollar podcast that you can. Uh, it's a it's a it's a Patreon only podcast, but it's a buck. And I think the whole first season is also free. Uh, you can find that at abnormalmapping dot com or abnormalmapping on YouTube or Patreon. All right, Austin, thanks so much, and let's continue on to the track of the week. All right, Nadia, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we explore a track from a different RPG because music is so important to understanding the genre that we love. This week, we're exploring a series that I'm surprised we haven't gotten to yet because it is one of the most formative RPG series around. That would be Dragon Quest. See if you recognize this track.
All right, Nadia, this song is Small Shrine from Dragon Quest III and Dragon Quest XI, because Dragon Quest XI ends up using a lot of music from the course of the entire series. You wrote like an essay about <laughs> this particular track here, so I'm not going to read it, all of it, but you want to give me the TLDR? <laughs> TLDR, the TLDR. Um, yes, we have not featured Dragon Quest music very often here, actually not at all, and mu- Dragon Quest music in the West tends to get overlooked compared to Final Fantasy music. I will admit it's not, it's not quite as good, but it still has some pieces that are extremely emotional, and I feel like Small Shrine is one of those pieces. I remember it being one of the first pieces of Dragon Quest music that really hit me hard and has a very melancholy sound to it. It actually plays in the titular small shrines in Dragon Quest III, which are like little stopovers when you cross over to new areas in the game. And there's, there's a million little places like that, just too small to be a town or, or anything like that. But where it really sticks out in its use is when you beat the, the, the bad guy of the game Baramos, and he, he, you learn that he is not the king bad guy, of course, that's Zoma. And Zoma flees to the underworld or another world, and you have to follow him. And you descend, and you find out you're in Alephgard, the, the kingdom from Dragon Quest I, and it's shrouded in perpetual darkness because of Zoma. And you realize you are playing a prequel to Dragon Quest I, and you are Loto, the legendary hero who was spoken of in Dragon Quest 1, and you have just descended from our world. So you have these all these revelations coming at you, one after another after another, and as you are kind of figuring this all out for yourself, you are in an area that's playing that small shrine music, and it just it's a really nice piece to temper all those revelations and also just emphasize the fact that you are in uh, an area, a kingdom that has never seen the sunlight and is under the rule of these tyrannical monsters. But despite all that, something you discover very quickly is people are living their lives regardless and doing the best they can. And uh, hey, that rings pretty true today. We were talking about Lufia too in Pantheon of the Blood God and you describing how it's suddenly you suddenly discover that this is a prequel to the original game reminds me a little bit of that, though. Lufia is a lot more how shall we say, upfront in the fact that it's a prequel? Yeah, it, it doesn't hide it so much as Dragon Quest Three did. Dragon Quest Three that was actually one of the first real big twists in an RPG that I think a lot of people cite, and it's a good one. Small Shrine, like all Dragon Quest music, is composed by Koichi Sugiyama, who is a legendary composer, but also maybe not a great person. He denies the Nanking Massacre and is notoriously anti-LGBTQ+, stating that there's no need for Japan to educate children about LGBTQ plus issues and that the community's lack of children is problematic. He's since softened his stance a little on the matter and thinks the Japanese government should indeed help the community. Nevertheless, there's a growing and understandable boycott against Dragon Quest in the West because of Sugiyama's beliefs. It should be noted that ejecting him for his views would be very difficult as he owns part of the franchise itself. He's also like 100 million years old, and he, I think that with Dragon Quest XI, he was very, very tired because we had like two tracks in that song, in that, that game. Yeah, actually, bringing it up, Small Shrine plays as a remix in Dragon Quest XI. And um, it plays at a very pinnacle, like a, a pinnacle of the story. And it's a, a very emotional sort of moment, but I can't really get into it without spoilers. Yeah, he's something like 93 years old. 
Um, he's 89, so, so not 100 yeah. million, but quite, quite old. I can't imagine <laughs> sitting there continuing to compose music at the age of 89. That's wild to me. Uh, that is pretty wild. And I mean, when you talk about Sugiyama, you inevitably get into the artist versus the art argument, which has been played over and over and over again. And it really comes down to if you are of a minority group who is targeted by these frankly horrible views, then it is up to you to make that decision and no one can take that from you. I feel like I w- if a trans person, for example, came up to me and said, I-, I cannot stand J.K. Rowling, I cannot stand Harry Potter anymore because of what she has said, I would say absolutely, that is, you are absolutely right, you do you. But if, the same, if a trans person came up to me and said, well, I don't agree with her, but I still have Harry Potter, I'm not going to argue with that trans person because I'm not trans. I don't have those feelings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's the same thing with uh, with someone like Sugiyama. If you are uh, of the LBGTQ plus group and you don't agree with what he said and you – because I do have friends who are gay and trans and they said, I can't support Dragon Quest because this, you know, this guy's views are, are really horrible. And I'd say absolutely. Um, I am not here to tell you or convince you that he is right and you should separate the art from the artist. That is up to you. Well, as a member of said community, uh, I do think that his uh, views are aberrant, but I'm not going to stop playing Dragon Quest. I think that I there are a lot of people who work on Dragon Quest, as it turns out, and not all of them have that kind of viewpoint. But I do think it's worth shouting it out and pointing it out for sure. I think it is absolutely important to, to shout it out and point it out. I mean, I think every minority group comes across that moment where okay, this person said a horrible thing about me. Do I still watch their stuff? I think we talked about this once, and my example was Roald Dahl, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, Fantastic Mr. Fox, all these books that I loved and grew up with, and I found out, well, he hates Jews. And I'm like, well, where do I go from here? And I'm just like, you know what? I still read his books. I still enjoy I still enjoy them. I think some of them are kind of mean-spirited, but that's something. that's another discussion. It's just you have to make that choice and I'm not going to tell another Jewish person, no, you should read his books because that's their choice. It's all – I'm an adult. You're an adult. Everyone is an adult, I think. Just make your choice for who you are and one more example that I want to give is probably is an example you can relate to as well, Kat, is we are women. We love JRPGs obviously and JRPGs often have very silly female character designs with, with big, big boobies and <laughs> – <laughs> I have had I have had guys, men, come up to me and say, how can you like, uh, for example, Xenoblade Chronicles 2? How can you support that and call yourself a feminist? A feminist? And I'm like, that is my business, thank you very much. I, I am very aware of how problematic this content is, and I am not here to defend it or, or anything like that. But I have my own reasons, I have my own thoughts and feelings, and if I'm going to be frank with you, Something like Pyra from from Xenoblade Chronicles 2, despite her her ridiculous bazooms, I find her a lot more of an enjoyable character than seeing the quote-unquote realistic and proportional Lara Croft in the new Tomb Raider games get brutalized over and over and over again in in horrible death scenes. And just to be told, well, she's, she's... this Laura Croft is, is proper and progressive because she's she looks like a real woman. That's not what it's all about. I mean... Just give me Bayonetta and her her stupid tits and her stupid high heels. At least she's confident and has fun with what she does. She's not dying and being a victim over and over again. Nadia Unleashed. Nadia Unleashed is right. 
All right, that's the track of the week. If you enjoyed the track of the week and you want to submit your own track, well, maybe drop one in the mailbag over on the Discord or send us an email at cat at bloodgodpod.com and we may include your track on the show or we may include your letter in the mailbag. We are going a little bit long this week, so we're going to skip the mailbag. That's the end of our episode. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you Once again, if you enjoy Acts of the Blood God, you can find us on the internet on Twitter at Blood God Pod. Same with Instagram. And you should leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. If you are not a subscriber, consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. We have an amazing Discord community. I'm looking at it right now, and all of those old channels are lit up. We've been having a fantastic time with the Pantheon Game Club playing Final Fantasy VIII this month. And the television of the Blood God, Witcher Watch, is about to wrap up. And if you want my full impressions of Mass Effect Legendary Edition, once again, it's over at IGN. And I was on Podcast Unlocked, where apparently I am, quote, a nerdy Doris Burke. (laughs) A nerdy what now? Doris Burke is a NBA commentator. And she's really great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, she really knows her basketball. So that's a good compliment. I'm I'm a nerdy Doris Burke with all of my RPG and sports knowledge, Nadia. Good. Then maybe that's your maybe that's your future career, Kat. My future career. <laughs> a nerdy commentator. Well, my current career is podcaster, and we will continue on for another week, I think. But for Nadia and Austin and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. Thank you.